The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And this week is no exception. Today, we're going to talk about acting on a soap opera, acting on stage, acting on screen, and all about Greek history in a new podcast called The Lost Treasure by the one and only soap opera icon, Theo Penglis, is visiting us right here on Guys Guys Radio. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let me tell you a little bit about Theo if you're not familiar with him. He is what I would call a old school in a really good way, raconteur in that he'd be the ultimate dinner party guest. He's, he's affable, he's articulate, he's a great storyteller, he's an actor on the stage, screen, TV, he's written books on cooking, he's written a cookbook, he's also written a book about a memoir of his life, and he's got a new podcast called The Lost Treasures about his Greek identity where he channels his passion for Greek history and culture by exploring the trilogy of Homer through the life of German archaeologist Heinrich Scheilmann, who himself changed history by uncovering the real-life locations and treasures in the ancient epic poems. Wow. So Teo's here today with us, and we're going to get into all of that. His stint on... Uh, stint, it's really uh, so much time he spent as a star on... Uh, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, Santa Barbara, the big, big soap operas. He played uh, two roles, Count Tony Demira and the Count's evil lookalike impersonator, Andre Demira, which is wild uh, that he, he, he uh, <clears throat> portrayed both of those characters on a soap opera. He was also in uh, the reboot of Mission Impossible, a TV series. He had a starring role there. And he's been in all types of, all types of films, uh, Ken Burns films. He's been in The Bell Jar and so many other great films uh, and TV shows where he, he's just an amazing guy. And uh, talking with him recently, I was just blown away by how interesting he was and what a gentleman in he, he is and how people aren't that polished anymore and, and who are really experts at the art of conversation. And he's just a, a fascinating individual, and I enjoyed speaking with him on the show and also kind of off, offline, off camera, if you will. And I just found him and really to be an outstanding person and really interesting character. And again, he is, uh, he got three Emmy nominations for Outstanding Lead Actor and a Soap Opera Digest Award for Favorite Return on General Hospital and Days of Our Lives. And also, once again, Santa Barbara. So he's an interesting guy. I think you're really enjoy, going to enjoy our conversation here on Guys Guys Radio. And, you know, I'm not a huge soap daytime soap fan. I was busy working for many, many, many years in a corporate job, so I didn't have time to follow all this stuff. And I remember on, I think it was Days of Our Lives, where it was this, the Luke and Laura 
story arc that went on and on and on. And he was part of that uh, way back when. And, but he maintained his uh, presence on the, in theater, on TV, on screen. And he is just a really cool dude. I'm so glad he's with us here on Guys Guys Radio because, you know, having a real gentleman here on, show, on the show, that's part of being a guys guy, if you will, where being polished, being refined, being a world traveler, a historian, it's so cool, and I wish him the very best with his new podcast, and I hope you'll check it out. It's called The Lost Treasures. So, Guys Guys Radio, our special guest, Taylor Pinglis. We're doing something a little bit different today. We're going to talk about soap operas, acting, stage, screen, film, books, cookbooks, memoirs, and also a new podcast about Greek history right here on Guys Guys Radio. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio. This is the interview portion of our show, and we've got a very special guest today. We're going to talk about acting, writing, podcasting, and a lot of things Greek, and a new podcast called The Lost Lost Treasures with my wonderful guest. His name is Teo Pinglis. You probably are aware of him from his incredible career. He's uh, had acclaimed roles and dual roles in General Hospital, Santa Barbara, Days of Our Lives. He won the Outstanding Lead Actor Award. He's an author of a number of books, uh, Places, The Journey of My Days, My Lives, and also a cookbook called Seducing Celebrities One Meal at a Time. He was in the reboot, the TV reboot of Mission Impossible, uh, a, a series Sadat, um, also Under Siege and Tribe. He's got a film career, Memories of Midnight, The Bell Jar, The Mirror, so many others. He studied in New York. He's just a very, very interesting individual, and I'm so pleased he's on Guys Guys Radio. So let's welcome Teo Pinglis. Welcome to the show, Teo. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. So let's get right to the your 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 past because you have such an incredibly interesting career and uh, the story arc of it. It's amazing. So you're a true Renaissance man, actor, writer, cookbook author, now a podcaster of the Lost Treasures, and you're an expert on ancient Greece and the Heinrich Schillman's work, which is going to be covered in your Lost Treasures podcast. But let's start at the beginning. You were born in Sydney, Australia, and you came to America, and you got to New York City, and you got into acting. How did that work? Well, you know, I, I, I never thought about acting. I was a diplomat in immigration. Uh, I, I uh, would gr- greet uh, Greek immigrants because my Greek was fluent. And then one day I went to a party and a woman by the name of Maria Hernandez, who was the head of the um, Belle Folklorico in Mexico. And because I looked like her son, she invited me to Mexico. It was a free trip. And, and I told my parents, and I was the first Greek boy and in those days, you never left the family until your sisters got married. So we had all those rules, right? And so, uh, but um, against their wishes, I took a trip. I said I'd be away for three weeks. And I landed in New York after Mexico. I so fell in love with New York and the freedom of New York, its culture, and its its diversity as far as its population, um, the Broadway theater. I never had that freedom or, or, or could afford to do all those things. But uh, I ended up staying a year. And then I, I went back to Australia because my parents were upset. And then I left eight days later. And from that moment, once I arrived in, back in New York, I remember meeting an actor 
uh, a Greek actor who said to me, you should be an actor. And I said, no, that was not particularly my cup of tea. But I, he took me to a class just to observe. And the teacher put me up on stage. And I didn't want to go because I said I wasn't ready for that. And and she said, but I want you to hear, hear you read. Anyway, I did. And she thought uh, she couldn't tell the difference between me and the chair. So she was very insulting and, <laughs> and almost crucified me at that moment. And so from that time, uh, I remember sitting down, upset as hell. I was 23 at the time. And the girl next to me, Margaret Frawley, her name was, said to me, oh, don't worry, honey, you're pretty. And so from <laughs> that moment, I, I I decided I was going to prove to my teacher, who I studied with for a number of years, I ended up becoming her best student. Amazing. So it, it, it just is amazing. You know, the tenacity, I must have had, I mean, the idea of having traveled a Greek boy who was a bit... Even though I was a diplomat, we were still behind in many ways in Australia compared to America. And so, I, I, you know, I met all these sophisticated people, you know, from John Gilgood to uh, Harold Prince to, to um, um, I mean, just so many celebrities that I, I, somehow I felt blessed. And when I was, uh, in order to get my papers, and I was uh, buff, uh, I loved history, my first person I met was Jacqueline Kennedy, that I had tea with her. Um, I was 21 at the time, and she was really a sweet, sweet lady. Um, loved Greek history. And then Claudette Colbert came in. And so I met all these people. So, you know, I'm a person who believes in signposts. People cross your path for a reason. Do you pay attention to that? Is it something that you think, or is it just a coincidence? Well, you know, after you've lived long enough, you realize, no, there were not coincidences. There were markers in my life of which I wanted to attain the best I could of myself. And they were godlike to me because they had a, such an enormous history. And, you know, a, a poor Greek boy from Sydney looking up at these idols Um and then you find out they're so human and so lovely. And, and, and so that's how it's all started for me. And um, well, I look back at it. it it's, it's been a wonderful uh, uh, journey. Now, you studied with uh, the, the, the storied Milton Ketselis. Right. And, then, and you uh, worked with him then for about 10 years, right? Right. I was his assistant for 10 years. I, I didn't like him. I thought he was just an arrogant Greek. He didn't like me because he thought I was a dilettante. So that was not a good partnership. And uh, it took me six months to convince him that I would love to watch his class and just observe. And so that's what I did. But within three months, I opened my mouth and told him I didn't uh, I didn't believe what he was saying. And so he thought that confrontation get, it gave me a certain character. And so he took me aside and he said, how would you like to be my assistant? And I said, no. And he said that he was the assistant of Elia Kazan, who had uh, directed uh, Brando in On the Waterfront, Waterfront right. and also in Streetcar named Desire, and he says, do you know what that means? If you become my assistant and I was his assistant, do you know what is passed down from that? I said, I don't care, I don't like you. And he <laughs> says, How could you not like me, you know? So here we are, two Greeks, you know. But what he liked about me was that I cooked. That added, because he was a bit 
bit of a food connoisseur. So when we worked late, he'd say to me, would you go in the kitchen and make a Greek lemon soup or would you go and make a, a bronzino, uh, whatever. But, you know, that was an added thing. And so um, because I was disciplined, because of immigration that I worked, I was always on time. I was, <coughs> excuse me, I always thought ahead of him. So we ended up having a fantastic relationship. And I ended up staying with him um, as a teacher as well for 40 years. Unbelievable. And then you're, uh, obviously your feelings for him must have evolved over time because you stayed with him together. You, you know, you, you stuck with um, him. You know, he, he ended up being my mentor. You know, we're all, we're all searching for answers of why we're here. We also want to know, you know, what resonates for us. And, and some people we meet become great disappointment because we do make mistakes. Our intuition is not as sharp as it should be. But with him, it was not a mistake. He he demanded the best, even though at times he would trip on his own beliefs. But he was a great um, instructor. He was a great, he, what he did was, you know, he always said, well, we, we all have these little children within us. And our job is to nurture them so that when they grow up, they assist us. And so this is what I remember about him. It was whatever I felt insecure about something I hadn't developed yet. Uh, I would remember what he would say was, don't forget to nurture it. And so I thought of them as children, the insecurities I came into this life. And so um, I think that's why we, we got along really well, because I did listen. I I did become a success for, out of the workshop with him. And he was very proud of that. Um, and he also liked me cooking for him every Saturday. Of course. <laughs> so, in, ter in terms of his acting approach and your beliefs in acting approach, Tao, what tell us about that. What What is acting all about? And what, what is your approach? What was his approach? And how do you become a good actor, believable? You know, there's method and there's all different type styles. Yeah. What, what's your beliefs on this? Um, you, you know, taking the journeys I have, and I don't, didn't realize it at the time, but how do you fill yourself up uh, with life? For me, it's been taking a lot of journeys, and not just journeys like people take trips for holidays. It was going into new territories, sometimes dangerous territories, especially in the Middle East. But when I came back, I felt something about me had changed. Every time I took a journey, something had developed more and more and more until I had a foundation I stood upon, which gave me the kind of confidence. Um, and then when I started to write, that became another muscle. So I added all these ingredients, which added to becoming an actor and interpreting life, which is what we do, is interpret life. And how, how do you differentiate um, I even studied with Stella Adler. You know, she would tell you about the sky. She would talk about the manners. She would spend six weeks doing a, a different playwright so that you understand the period, so that the audience understands by the way your attitude is developed how your relationship is. When you're a young man, you don't scream or talk to an older person. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, if you do, you're just rude and people just cut you off basically so you learn all the social standings as well so that you incorporate that in the character you're playing then there's the costume close to me because i i had studied fashion in new york 
for two and a half years. Uh, putting on a costume uh, is the last thing that helps me, especially the shoes, uh, helps me understand the walk and the attitude of the character. So all these, even the cooking, how do you know what kind of ingredients are you putting in the soup? All those little ingredients add up to like you would break down a character. So you have an arc. George C. Scott used to do that. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I would do a chart for myself because, you know, when you're shooting a film you, uh, uh, in television, you shoot scenes all over the place. So in order to understand the emotional arc of the character, you have to know which and where. So if you're doing a scene towards the end, you have to know where you, how you're going to start it. So you don't, you don't give it away early on. You, in, in other words, you, you don't let the souffle rise at, at, in the beginning. You must allow it to become what it is. And there, and there are all the different things I learned, but the biggest education of it all was Milton taught you how to self-direct because a lot of directors don't have the time, nor do they have the knowledge. They know their technical aspects. They know where to ask you to move. But he taught you to be able to know and think before the director when you turn when you go across the room and have the camera follow you, that's how you take charge. Do you, uh, when you're acting, do you listen uh, closely to what the other character is saying, or you focus more on what your role is, or do you do you look at it as an interaction? No, you know, if you're not listening, you know, if someone's throwing you a ball, when do you right. know when to right. throw it back? Um, if you don't listen, then your timing's off. Mm -hmm. If you're going to make, you know, one of the things that I've upset people doing a scene is because I listen and because of the delivery of what I give them back, sometimes I don't expect it because I try to save some things that I don't do in rehearsal. I want to surprise the, the actor opposite me. So depending on the tone of the actor, how they, how they throw the ball at me is the way I respond. But listening is how you pick up your cues. Because if you don't, then it drops the scene. You know, people who tell stories mm -hmm. around the table and they're always got little bridges in right. their story and yeah. you go, okay, so what what happened? And they keep stopping and, and because they're not quite sure how to drive the story through. Well, that's the same thing. When, when you're doing a scene, you have to know how to pick up your cue. Um, or like you watch Obama, when Obama delivers a line, he allows it to land. Right. So that's, you know, so there are many ways to do it, and it's not always the same. You have to, when you go on a set, you've got to size it up pretty quickly, and you've got to see who's for you, who's not. You know, you come on and you remind somebody of, you remind me of the guy who took away my wife. Uh, or, you know, it doesn't matter. But right. It's those elements that not everything is candy. You know, you come in, the director's in a bad mood. You know, directors are not always easy. But, you know, you have to allow them to be surprised. I always like to surprise directors. And that is know, know my, my, my material. When I go on set, I, I'm, I'm right away. Um, that's without knowing your material, you, your stepping is confused. Okay. So you, you have to be, you know, a professional is being prepared.
Got it. Now, uh, tell us about your uh, your transition. You, how did you get into theater? You kind of talked about how you got into theater, but then you transitioned to TV. You made your mark in daytime soaps. You got into film. What was the trajectory of that? And what is the difference between the three mediums? Um, I started off off Broadway in New York. Um, you know, studying all those lines and working in those little dingy theaters and no pay, but it was about your craft. Um, that 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 was a place where I was developing my technique. Um, and you don't know it at the time. Um, but then what is an amazing experience when you're doing theater is that you have an audience that's live, whereas with television or film, your audience is your crew, and they don't give a damn. You know, they just want you to do your work and so they can go home and or have their lunch. And, but I learned a long time ago that when I did theater, um, you had to make sure you brought the audience on the stage, not the other way around. So what I would do with the curtain closed, I would lie on the floor of that theater, on that stage, and I would meditate on that stage and take in my mind, I would bring the audience up on the stage to me so that when I did make my entrance, that work was already done. I wasn't hesitant or nervous. I would come on and I already had the audience with me in my mind. So I wasn't hesitant because... You know, all audiences are different. Some audiences don't get it. Some audiences just love you. I mean, some audiences just go crazy and applaud you or whatever. But it's remembering those lines and not always easy. And I remember working at the Geffen Theatre and I, I remember an actor threw me the wrong line. And I was very, uh, it threw me. Um, I had a sequence with an actor called Victor Bruno, who was quite mm -hmm. big in his sure. day. Yeah. And and Victor loved to upstage you. And I remember having a, a big scene and I was talking to God. I was playing a monk in the 14th century. And he would make fun of me behind my back and the audiences were laughing while I had this serious speech to God. I mean, talking to God has never been a comedy. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You want to connect to a higher source. Um, so, when, so when I told the director uh, he was um, making fun of me, the director said, yeah, but it's funny. I said, but the scene's not funny. So nobody would help me. So what I decided to do was I decided to outcreate him. And how do you do that? Instead of looking out at the audience and talking to God, I turned to him. And I did the God speech to him. <laughs> which I threw like him it. for a loop and he had a big scepter and he <laughs> dropped the scepter out of up, being upset because it threw his cue and the scepter rolled down the stage, which was an eight degree rake stage. And he had to bend down and, you know, Victor was huge and he couldn't quite get up, picking up, trying to pick up his scepter because <laughs> that was his authority was the bishop. And he was trying to pull it up, pull it up. And finally didn't, I said to him, I threw in the line, can I help you, sire? That <laughs> got him so upset. He got up. He started to scream at me, which wasn't in the scene. He started <laughs> to scream at me, went back to his throne, and I thought, well, screw this, and I started to walk off stage. I thought, I'm not going to deal with this unprofessionalism. And he says, come back here. So I keep <laughs> flying back. 
You know that scene, which was 32 minutes long, got a standing ovation. Wow, that's fantastic. It was, it was how it was you real, right? Those, yeah. You know, you work so with you, real that's emotion. why you have to be on the ball. So you don't know from an audience point of view how they can respond. Now to do television, like I, when I'm when we did Mission, we worked six days a week. Um, I had to get there at three in the morning to put the masks on. They were not, it was not an easy process. We were in the beginnings of that. And just for the benefit, Teo, for our audience, my special guest, Teo Pinglis, we're talking about his role in the reboot on TV of Mission Impossible. Yes, I played Nicholas Black. And I remember, I remember the producers took us out for dinner. And the director, the head producer said to me, So what are we going to call you? And I said, Well, I always like the name Nicholas. And he goes, Oh, okay. And then he looked at me and says, Black, because I was dark. He says, Nicholas Black. That's how my name started, right? <laughs> that was over dinner. That's how it began. And and then we started to proceed because we had to do, it was a strike. So we had to do the original fi first five scripts that had been done in the 70s, which was not easy. Um, I'd have all these accents, and uh, there was no way around it for anybody to teach me the accents. So I had to recall them or watch a movie. Uh, that that was a, a lot of work. Six days a week, um, the adjustments were, you know, they were they were right on top of us. They thought my eyelashes were too long. The producers came to me and they said, "We need to cut your eyelashes." I said, "My mother's going to put a hit on you." I said, <laughs> "I can't cut my eyelashes." What for? Said, well, your, your eyelashes are too big for a for a, a male, and we want a very masculine male. And I said. <laughs> <laughs> what have eyelashes got to do with it? This is how primitive <laughs> the, the thinking. And I said, no. <laughs> so I stuck to my guns. When I told my producer years later, he couldn't believe it because he couldn't remember it. He says, we never did that. I said, yes, you did. So <laughs> Mission was great because it took me home. We shot it in Australia in Queensland. We opened the Warner Brothers studio up in Queensland, and then we went down to Melbourne and then to Sydney. Um, that was great. Different in daytime because in nighttime you have, you know, maybe five pages for the next day. In daytime, like I was playing two characters, there were days I had 40 pages to learn the night before. Well, uh, let, 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 let's set that up for everybody, uh, Teo. You were a star on three major soap operas, Days of Our Lives, Santa Barbara, General Hospital, and in one of them, uh, you played Count Tony Demira yeah. and Andrew Andre Demira. Andre Demira. Right? Yeah, that was Days of Our Lives. Okay. Yeah, um, the there was, was <laughs> the the people you deal with. The head producer Paul Rausch on Santa Barbara um, seduced me in a way. Called me over. I I had finished with the soaps, and he said, "Listen, I need you to come on the soap. I have I have this wonderful storyline. We're going to be shooting it in Lake Cuomo, in Italy." It's a great love story. It's going to be with Kim Zimmer, who I always love. She's a wonderful actress. And so I said, okay, uh, for a year. I said, okay, I'll do that. Um, I had turned down a mini series, um, and I said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. And then about three weeks into it, I said, oh, so when are we going to Lake Cuomo? He said, oh, they canceled that. <laughs> What, you know what I mean? Yeah. Suddenly looking at somebody, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's cancelled, is it? And so I was really upset. 
because I felt I was, you know, I can't stand liars, you know. Tell me the truth and I can handle it, but lie to me. And so I went up to him one time and he said to, I said, do you think we can get better lighting on the show? He said, I beg your pardon. We have the Emmy-winning lighting directors on this show. I said, not on my face, you don't. And he <laughs> just screamed. <laughs> he didn't talk to me for a long time. And so <laughs> that was Santa Barbara. Um, it was General Hospital that really got me because it was a strike, nine-month strike. I had just finished Altered States with Ken Russell and Bill Hurd. Mm-hmm. And uh, great, gotten, great film, great film. Yes, and I'd gotten really good reviews, and um, they finally they came to me and they said that um, that Ken would like to meet me. I met him three times. Anyway, it was not the greatest experience because he was a bit of a drinker, and he came at me with a wine bottle at one point. Amazing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all lovely in this business. Um, but uh, he attacked everybody. It wasn't just me. But uh, out of that, somebody had seen it and wanted me to play opposite Charlton Heston uh, in Man for All Seasons and with Vanessa Redgrave. And I went back three times, and um, the director, Jack O'Brien, had, had won three Tonys, and I thought, oh, that would be a great experience. It was playing Richard Rich. So I met Charlton Heston, who was one of my idols, uh, he was just the gentleman of gentlemen. I mean, he, he talk about an actor loving another actor. He was such a nice man. And then I did the audition for him, and this was the final. I've been back three times. And he said to me, I love the simplicity in the way you play this. And he went on and on and on, and then the casting director said, that, Chuck, there's somebody else waiting. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and that was it. Well, there was an actor called John Glover who'd won a Tony on Broadway, and he called up and said he wanted to play it. So they ended up giving me the understudy, and I turned it down because uh, I, I was so upset because I was so gung-ho. You wanted it, right? I wanted this play. So these were the ups and downs in theatre. But out of that came the strike, and for nine months there was no work. And so... I was getting all this build up. People who were interested with what I was doing, and then suddenly it all stopped. The only thing open was daytime, and that's where I went to General Hospital. I auditioned. I didn't get it, but the casting director and the producer remembered me because the actor they cast ended up being weak. So they called me in, and they had this idea that you know this was the Luke and Laura story. This was mm-hmm. the, I remember that sure. You know that was huge, biggest audience in the yep. history of daytime. Yep. And they said we'd like you to play one of the brothers. And so I couldn't believe that you had to learn this much dialogue overnight. I could, my mind was not conditioned, and I was told one scene at a time. the The muscle has to be exercised in order to remember that much dialogue. She was so good to me, and obviously she saw something that she felt that she could use on the show. Nobody in the history of of daytime had an accent like mine, British, they thought. So they thought, this is a new thing, because she always said, well, you know, American audiences are used to American uh, sounding actors. So when I came on and had this British thing, something changed. 
suddenly the scope of the story brought an overseas quality, brought an international quality, and so a sophistication, a style. Anyway, she was she had hired 30 actors that summer, and to make this story short, all of them were either killed off and then they said goodbye. This was just here for three months. And then I remember one of the actors coming to me and telling me that he was crying, and he said to her, but what about my fans? And she said, can I swear on this? Can I swear? No. No. So she said, <laughs> I'm glad. I was going to use it. <laughs> I'm, I'm honest. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. You have to be. It's your show. So I, she said, F your fans, right? <laughs> and he came and says, your turn. And I said, what, what happened? She says, he says, I'm dead. I said, oh. So she called me and she goes, so, hello, darling. She said, what's it like to be the only actor that's going to survive this storyline? <laughs> so that was the news for me. And from that, I stayed. And she said, you'll be back in a couple of months. But then days of our lives kind of seduced me. And that's where I went. And uh, I'm glad I did because I've been on that show for over 40 years. Wow. So our special guest on Guys, Guys Radio, Teo Penglis. Wow. So many stories. What a renaissance man you are. Uh, what was it like? Because I want to cover a lot more ground and I want to get to the, your new podcast. But what was it like playing, playing two characters? Um, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do, especially when you have to do it in the same hour. What do you change? First, firstly, it's the physical. Secondly, it's the voice and also the humor. And so I decided to make one character a bit of an idiot and uh, change the hair and the voice became lower. And the main character, I made him the model of the character and I gave him a kind of a classy kind of attitude. He dressed a certain way. He spoke a certain way. And um, one was trying to become and the other one had become. So with that difference, now they had me fence myself. That was most difficult. I had to fence and then turn around, change my attitude, (laughs) and then fence with the other character. So was I crazy about it? I like playing them separately and not together. But then they found out that when I played them together, they had to pay me twice. Well, <laughs> did that finish quickly? After a year, they they started getting really nervous when they found out from this from after the union that they had to pay me twice because they were two separate characters. And therefore, I began a new law in daytime because of those two characters. And they they I remember a producer coming in. With his, while I was sit, sitting there reading a paper, my paper started to shake. And I put the paper down. It was my producer. And he said to me, Do you know how much money we're talking about? <laughs> I said, Yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's talk about your uh, podcast. There's other things I want to get into, like your cookbook and your memoir and travel book. But let's talk about the lost treasures because it's a very interesting t- uh, concept. Heinrich Scheilman proved. Clement. Schliemann, um proved the myths of Troy and Mycenae My are, re- are really true. So, what is your what is your um, love for Greek and I guess uh, myth- mythology and history? And how did this all come about? I listened to the podcast and very interesting story. How did you pull this all together? 
Um, it took 20 years. Wow. Of research, not knowing what the end result was going to be. I, I finished a script on the story, and then they wanted to bring in a modern thing that I now have to do a re- um, uh, I have to redo the script, uh, which is fine. But it was when I went into the archaeological museum in Athens, Greece, and a man behind the counter let out a sound, and I looked up, and he came to me and hugged me, as only Greeks hug, and said to me that he was a huge fan of Mission Impossible. What can we do for you? And I said, I want to meet the Minister of Culture. I'd like to get permission to go into the palace that was closed of Henrik Schliemann in Athens. He built this incredible house in the 1880s. And uh, today it's the Numismatic Museum. But when I asked permission, it was closed. And there was only one woman there who took care of it. Um, I, when I went through that, I found that to be really fascinating, the whole house. It started to explore my imagination, um, what it was like in the 19th century. I mean, we're talking about kings and, and queens and and big and uh, dignitaries from all over the world would come and visit him because this man had discovered by studying the Iliad, that was Homer's Iliad, uh, that it was a map to finding Troy. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Why don't I continue with that? But that story. So then I, I, I went um, to Troy and I sat at the edge of Troy where there were nine cities built over each other. And as I looked out into the, like a huge paddock, which they called a trode, I thought to myself, this is where the Greeks and the Trojans fought. This is where that war took 10 years. Where, where exactly is Troy? Troy is in Turkey. Okay. And it's about eight-hour drive from Istanbul. Okay. I was just in Istanbul over the summer. Fascinating. Uh, yes, I was just there too. I just came back. Mm -hmm. um, you now you can fly there, uh, but it it was um, you know it was, it was Greek history in now uh, a Muslim country, right? And um, so when when I explored that, I thought. I wonder what else there is for me to look at, you know. And so I got permission to go to the Gennadius Library in Athens. I went through 60,000 documents in two weeks. I went through all of Schliemann's diaries, his letters to his wife, his letters to Gladstone, who was Prime Minister of England at the time. So when I got all that, to me it was like a recipe. It was all these ingredients that came together as a story. And so I would take notes and I would write things. And then one day my manager said to me, why don't you make a podcast of this? And I thought, okay, so really it's a trilogy. It is, it is discovering Troy, um, the way he escaped with the treasure out of Turkey because they were not going to share it, and then how it got stolen during the Second World War that the Russians had come in and taken it and disappeared. So nobody knew where it was, and they said the treasure after 50 years has disappeared again. It's lost forever. 
what they didn't know, it was in the basements of the Pushkin Museum in, in Russia. And you know the Russians, they stole over 5 million pieces. I mean, the Germans stole, especially from the Jews, all that artwork, that wonderful collection of art that Europe had. And then, the, of course, it ended up in Germany, and then, of course, the Russians stole over 5 million pieces, and they still have it, pretending that it's, you know, shared now. But that's where the treasure is. The second story is following how Schliemann ended up going to Mycenae, which is in the Peloponnesos, which is about two and a half hours from Athens south. And in that area was where the Trojan War started. And it's where Agamemnon and then his brother Menelaus, mm-hmm. king of Sparta. And that's how, and then he went into what they called the citadel and he started digging and he found these inc- this incredible treasure, which was greater than Troy, gold masks and gold swords and jewellery. And I went to visit and saw the treasure in Athens at the Archaeological Museum. And then the third, which was exciting, the, one of the most exciting things, was I gave a call. I'd heard that they were looking for the lost island of Ithaca that came, uh, that was the home of Ulysses. So they have an island called Ithaca today, but when you read Homer, Homer says that the island of Ithaca was the furthest out west and the Ithaca of today is east. So there was a lie there. So why, what happened here? It was a British scholar who came, who stood in a in in a in what they call a a, a, a narrow a passage and thought that it looked fake somehow. This wasn't real. And then he got a geologist. They checked and they realized that between the fourth and the sixth century, the mountain because of an earthquake, came down and closed two islands into one. And that's why today they have discovered the real Ithaca. And and I called Crawshaw, who was part of the development. He invited me over, and I spent time with him, uncovering all this with him. And so that gave me three. And then the fourth one is really about why I did this podcast, and it deals with me being kidnapped, uh, an attempted kidnap at pyramids, Hezbollah pulling, which I think is interesting because of today, what's going on today, Hezbollah pulling me out of the car in southern Lebanon, throwing me against the wall and, and accusing me of being an Israeli spy. Oh so goodness. I have a lot of obstacles wow. in my way. They're not all been, you know, lovely stories. Let's go for a walk. It's it's, it's Amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh, this to me, this is a, a podcast is one thing, but I think this is a TV series. This is a mini series. This is a film, and your separate story, your personal story, I think is fascinating. Also, you're just a really a very interesting man, Teo. And I've interviewed okay. 750 people on this show, and you are captivating. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I don't know what to say until somebody asks me the question. So <laughs> thank you for the good questions. Um, you know, you don't know what you know. You don't know what kind of a foundation you, you've built until somebody asks you the questions. The thing is, are people listening? Because the only way you're going to grow, and for the young ones, because I went to USC last week to film school, and I lectured to those students, and that was exciting for me because it was the young ones who are yearning for new things to understand, whereas when you go to people who are older, they They'll interrupt your story. They say, oh, okay, okay, I've done. <laughs> you know, and so you're going, I hadn't finished. And so, 
<laughs> you go on. So, you know, how do you become a storyteller? Well, it's a, it's a skill and you, you've got it because it's not easy. And I think from your, your acting background, it's part of it. But one last question for you, because we're running out of time, but the cookbook, tell us about your cookbook. It is called, uh, seducing celebrities, one, meal, one at meal at a time. time. Yeah. How'd right. you come up well, with that? You know, to me, food is about seduction. Exactly. You know, when we invite people, you just don't, you know, make it ordinary. I don't serve pizza. Let's have, come over and have pizza and a Coke <laughs> or something. You know, it's not a football game um, or hot dogs. I, I really go to the expense and to the work. I mean, I'll go shopping for a whole day and then a whole day of putting it together. And then you create the atmosphere. And how do you create an atmosphere? You want those people walking through your house going, oh, my God, what is that? That smells so delicious. So you build the appetite from the beginning. You also create the atmosphere where people go, oh, my God, I want to sit here. Because when people come into my home, they will say, oh, my God, it just looks so beautiful. Well, to me, let's present the best. That's what they did for me when I was young. That's how I learned. They gave me their best. They shared me with their best. And you're always left happy. And and that's why I have memories is because people took the time to give you to you something that was special. And they're not doing that today. People are not sharing. People are not. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people I know who are so selfish when it comes to. I, 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 someone said, oh, what shall we do for dinner? And because I do it every week with my friends, I said, well, why don't we do something at your place? So they gave me a, 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 um, a cartoon thing of, of someone looking bored. That didn't appeal to them. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, do people, not, it's like coming to somebody's home. You don't go empty-handed, even if it's a rose. It's At least it's a contribution, and thank you for inviting me. So I think those are important. Well, thank, thank you, Teo Penglis, for being on Guys, Guys Radio. You're a gentleman and a scholar, and I learned a lot today, and hopefully our audience, everybody really enjoyed your stories and uh, is very interested in The Lost Treasures, the new podcast, and all the work you've done. I mean, you're world famous, and you, you've done a great job, and uh, congratulations on everything. Your life's work, terrific, and there's got to be a lot more ahead of you. So God bless you. And Thanks for being on the show. My mother loves you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's Guys Guy Radio. What a fascinating conversation with a fascinating man. Teo Pinglis here on Guys Guys Radio. Storied actor of soap operas, stage, screen, television, Mission Impossible, so much more writer, cookbook, and his memoir. And now he's got a new podcast called The Lost Treasures about Greek history. So what an amazing man, a real Renaissance guy, and somebody you'd love to sit next to at a dinner party because he's filled with stories and information and he follows his passion. And he's just an interesting, cool guy who can tell a joke and tell a story. And uh, that's, a, that's a skill. That's almost a lost art, being a real raconteur. And if you're ever at a dinner party with a bunch of uh, cool people, sometimes they'll go around the table and everybody has to tell a story or tell a joke or something. And 
the guy you wouldn't want to follow is Teo because he's got some great stories and he's really interesting and funny and fascinating. So the takeaway I got is polish up the conversation game and learn to have a good story in your back pocket as well as one solid joke. So guys, guys, radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA radio in Southern California, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The show rebroadcasts on KCAA every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. You can also listen live, stream, or download on their uh, digital uh, locations that you can find. And uh, we're on, the our podcast drops on Thursday throughout the day. We're, we're downloading over 100 countries. We also have our YouTube and Rumble that comes out late Thursday afternoon. And you can watch the show and watch the interviews. Uh, won't have the open and close, but you can watch the interview. And then also we're on UK Health Radio four times every weekend, as well as all our episodes are on demand. Now, UK Health Radio is a a digital radio station, so you listen to it online. It's the world's largest talk radio station. It's growing leaps and bounds, and we're a major part of it. And uh, I also write a column for their digital magazine called Health Triangle Magazine. The name of my column is Aging is a Choice. It's a series that's written about kind of our culture's dysfunctional perspective on what aging is and what it means, and a lot of the protocols and practices I deploy and uh, use to keep myself feeling as young and vital as possible, and I share those with you, and maybe you'll consider some of them. So if you like and enjoy uh, all the guests and content I bring you each and every week to Guys Guys Radio and Guys Guys TV, our YouTube and Rumble channels, please support us by subscribing, rating, following wherever on the platform that you consume our show. If you do watch us on YouTube, I'd ask you please subscribe there because that means a lot. And uh, we're growing and growing and growing. And it's interesting because we've got a 40-minute interview on there. And most of the bits, as you know, on YouTube are pretty short. So thank you for your support there. If you want to get more information on me and more content about the whole Guys Guys movement, Go to my website, Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I.com. It's got over 300 blog posts about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, a lot of the topics we cover here on the show. And while you're there, you can also download for free three free chapters of my debut novel called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stake world of Madison Avenue. It's based on a lot of my own experience, even though it's a fictional world I've created for it. And it's been called by iconic 20th century author Dan Wakefield, who wrote Going All the Way in New York in the 50s and a bunch of other stuff. And he's, he's, a, he's a real titan in terms of uh, being a writer. He calls the book The Man's Successor to Sex in the City. So I hope you'll check that out. Um, we're here every week. I've got a bunch of terrific guests lined up for the remainder of 2023, the crazy year we're having and beyond. In the interim, I want to thank all of my 750 individuals that I've connected with and had conversations with on our show, as well as my wonderful producer, Chris, my strategy lead, Ryan, and most of all, I want to thank you, our listeners and viewers, because you make it all possible and I develop and create the show with you in mind. I want to ask the questions and get the right guests with the right information to share with you to help you live your best life. So thank you so much. I'm going to see you next week. And until then, like I always say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>